0: and we had, we had drank and we had smoke and stuff. And we were talking about sex. And he agreed to get into it because we got into it right in the living room. Mutual? Not at first. But after that? Again, I don't remember. I believe I, I did kill him. I think he was over. What was your initial emotional response? Just to throw him down the crawl space. Get rid of him. Even once you buried somebody, it was already gone. Once they were on the ground, they weren't my problem. There was no feeling. I don't, I don't believe I killed anybody, but yet I know I did. In this story, we will be discussing the sexual assault, torture, and murder of multiple young men and boys. This chapter may be triggering for some listeners. This will be the only warning. Please do not listen if you are sensitive to this topic. Hey everyone. This week I'm going to go over the killer clown case. I would have preferred to have Brie here so we could talk about some of this stuff, but it is what it is. So believe it or not, this is one of our most requested serial killers to cover. Now I I do think that the unidentified victims need to be identified and all of these victims need a voice and they need to be remembered. My personal opinion is that John Gacy has saturated our true crime coverage for decades. And personally, don't come at me for this because I'm entitled to my own opinion, but John Wayne Gacy bores me. His victims don't bore me, um, but like so many cases, the information about his victims' lives is sparse. But I hope that by giving him yet another hour of coverage on this platform may create some interest possibly bringing up some new leads and new information that can be sent to the sheriff's office to help identify the unknown John does that were found in the crawl space. At this point, I kind of doubt it because if somebody's had a missing youth back in the seventies, if they wanted to come forward by now, I suspect that they have, but I mean, there's always hope. Gacy's life and who he was as a person is nothing to remember. I actually hate it when people call him the most prolific serial killer or the worst serial killer in history, blah, 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 or even still referring to him using that moniker, the killer clown. I get that the sheer number of victims at that time set him apart, but this guy was such a liar and got so much media attention throughout his time on death row. At this point, he just annoys the shit out of me. Having said all that, I'm a people pleaser, and you have asked for this story to be told, so let's go. John Wayne Gacy. Let's talk about it. John Wayne Gacy was born on March 17, 1942, in Chicago, Illinois. According to the book Killer Clown by Terry Sullivan and Peter Macon, Gacy seemed to have a regular childhood with the exception of his turbulent relationship with his father, John Wayne Gacy Sr., The authors describe the father as an unpleasant, abusive alcoholic who was prone to physically and verbally assaulting his children. They describe Gacy as deeply loving his father and desperately wanting to gain his approval and attention, but failing to win him over. John Wayne Gacy Sr. died on Christmas Day in 1965. Just a side note here, his dad died while Gacy was in prison, which I will get to here soon. Um, But reports say that Gacy asked to attend the funeral, but the request was denied, and apparently Gacy was devastated about not being able to attend his father's funeral. That's uh, tragic. Boo-hoo. Anyway, let's get on to stuff that matters. According to Gacy, he had a heart defect that caused him to randomly pass out as a child, and he was struck in the head by a swing when he was 14, knocking him unconscious. He also claimed that a friend of the family, a construction worker, used to teach him to wrestle, showing him submission moves that Gacy said generally consisted of placing his head between the man's legs, though he never thought of this as inappropriate or sexual, of course, until Robert Wrestler asked him about it specifically. After attending four high schools during his senior year and never graduating, John Wayne Gacy dropped out of school and left Chicago for Las Vegas. While he was there, he worked part-time as a janitor for Palm Mortuary. Rumors spread after his arrest that Gacy was a necrophile and that he abused corpses during this time, even crawling into the crypts with the cadavers. But Gacy later laughed this off, saying the closest he'd ever come to sleeping with a dead body is when his final victim, Rob Peace's body, was in his house the night he was murdered. He'd failed to mention that he was sleeping with 27 bodies in his crawl space and around his house, but I digress. Actually, more than that, he had 27 bodies in the crawl space and then uh, two other bodies found on his property, but again, I digress. I worked for Palm Mortuary, being the night man picking up bodies at the hospitals and stuff for them. I worked as a night man only. I did have nothing to do with the bodies. All this talk that I slept with the dead ones or or had sex with dead bodies, there is no truth to any of that. You didn't live in the uh, mortuary? I lived in the mortuary, yes, but not in the embalming room. I mean, they make it sound like I slept in the crypts with them. And I never climbed into a coffin or anything like that. that. That is so damn ridiculous. You know, it's the same thing. The contention is that I slept all night with Robert Peace. If you want to say I slept in the same house with a dead body, okay, fine, I'll I'll buy that. But in the same room, no. And besides, the dead won't bother you. It's the living you got to worry about. What an idiot, honestly. What a putt. In any case, he was unhappy in Vegas, so he returned to Chicago a few months later. During the 1960s, Gacy enrolled in a business college and developed a talent for salesmanship. He was a born salesman, and he could talk his way in and out of practically any situation. Upon graduating, he went to work as a management trainee at the Nunn Bush Shoe Company in downtown Chicago. He excelled in his position, and within weeks, he transferred to Springfield, Illinois, to manage a men's clothing outlet for the company, where he remained employed for almost a full year. Shortly after his promotion, Gacy married into a wealthy family and relocated with his new bride to Waterloo, Iowa. In 1966, at the request of his father-in-law, Gacy took over management of the family's chicken restaurant, which was a KFC. Gacy quickly became a well-known and liked member of the community. Gacy would be arrested for the first time in 1968. The felony charge, attempting to coerce a male employee into homosexual acts, came as a big surprise to those who thought they knew this likable father of two babies, and especially to his wife of two years. Gacy pled guilty to sodomy and was sentenced to 10 years in Iowa's state men's reformatory in Anamosa. His wife filed for divorce following the sentencing. This pissed Gacy off, and he told her he didn't want to see his children again and would consider her and the two kids as dead. As far as I know, he stuck to this, And I'm sure his wife and kids were very thankful for severing the relationship. While in prison, Gacy was the head cook and the leader of the J.C.s. Now, from what I understand, the J.C.s was a respectable political slash charitable club for men where Gacy was hugely successful in in recruiting more men to join. This position helped him after he was released to become very popular and respected, but I'll also get into that a little bit later. After serving just 18 months of his 10-year sentence, Gacy was paroled on October 18, 1971, and returned to Chicago. Unknown to his parole officer, Gacy was actually arrested by Chicago police on February twelfth, only eight months after his release from prison, and he was charged with attempted rape and disorderly conduct. A gay youth had complained to authorities that Gacy had picked him up at the Greyhound station in downtown Chicago. He told police that Gacy took him back to his house and attempted to have sex with him. However, the charges were dropped when the boy failed to appear in court for the hearing. Shortly after returning to Chicago, Gacy went to work as a construction contractor. Three years later, in 1975, he started his own construction business called PDM Contractors. That July, he remarried a recently divorced woman he had met through mutual friends and with financial assistance from his mother, moved into a house in Des Plaines, a middle-class suburb of Chicago. Gacy had a talent for business. He often gained contracts by undercutting his competitors' bids. He was able to cut costs by hiring a number of teenage boys, which at least five of these boys became his victims, but his business grew. Gacy spent part of his leisure time hosting elaborate street parties for friends and neighbors, dressing as a clown, and entertaining children at local hospitals. This is where the Killer Clown moniker comes from. The clown had two personalities. There was Pogo, which was the most well-known of the two. Pogo would entertain kids at children's hospitals or at parades or functions for kids. And the other less-known and lesser-used costume was that of Patches. Now, from what I understand, Patches would entertain at adult functions. I've heard stories that Gacy would brag about copping feels on women and men when he was dressed as Patches, saying a clown can get away with murder. Both of his costumes are on display at the Crime Museum on Alcatraz Island, creepy and very demented. Uh, there's no evidence to suggest that any of the murders were committed while he was dressed up or was quote-unquote clowning, as he liked to call it. However, he did use some of the same tricks to subdue his victims as he would do on kids. Obviously, he was probably more playful when he was pogo or patches, but what a fucking creep, like honestly. Gacy also immersed himself into organizations such as the JCS and a local Democratic Party. As a Democratic precinct captain, he once had his picture taken with First Lady Rosalind Carter. He would organize functions and parades and was just well-respected in the community. Come to find out, the way he was able to recruit so many people into the JC Club was by showing stag films, which are porn films, if you don't know, and supplying weeds and quaaludes and alcohol during recruitment parties Back then, all of this stuff was very taboo. Gacy's second wife divorced him in March of 1976. She felt she could no longer cope with the marriage due to her husband's unpredictable moods and bizarre obsession with homosexual magazines. The couple didn't have children. In fact, this wife, she later said that after she had sex with Gacy, he turned around and informed her that that would be the last time that he would ever have sex with her. So of course she divorced him. So now let's go through Gacy's victims. First, we will list the victims who were exhumed by law enforcement from the crawl space in Gacy's house. The information on most of these boys will be very formal, meaning very few of them had a lot of uh, available information about like their lives and their upbringings. I will include any information that I can find though. Gacy's first victim, he confessed to this one early on, But just quickly before we talk about him, Gacy claims that this victim came at him with a knife and he killed him in self-defense. This boy's name is Tim McCoy. Tim was 16 years old when he was last seen on January 3, 1972, getting into a vehicle at a bus terminal in Chicago during a layover en route to his home in Nebraska. Tim had been celebrating Christmas with friends in Michigan. He was down to earth. He was often described as the life of the party. He also was a little mischievous, as teenagers can be, and he loved to hitchhike, which in the 70s it was common among the youth. After Tim's parents divorced, the boy lived in Nebraska with his father, while his mom lived in Florida with her new husband. The family originally hailed from Iowa, where Tim spent Christmas 1971 alongside his grandparents, cousins, aunts, and uncles. Then, he traveled to Michigan to spend New Year's at the home of relatives. Tim's upbringing was a little different, his family came from a small town where everybody knew everyone, and he remained close despite his parents' divorce. In the early days of his disappearance, Tim's father hired an investigator to look for his son. After Gacy made the news, the family suspected that Tim might have been among his victims, and an aunt was put in charge of sending his dental records to the authorities. But the aunt never set the record. She later explained that by saying she wanted to spare her family the horror of knowing the truth. It was an act of love in some ways, not to submit dental records, to preserve that family happiness and not to let the dark in, so to speak. Tim's remains were found among those in the crawlspace. John Wayne Gacy would go on to confess that Tim is the only victim that he had stabbed to death. This was his first murder, and he learned by this crime that he didn't want to have a mess to clean up um, if he ever had the opportunity to kill again. Tim was identified in 1986 after a cousin read a magazine article about Gacy. She contacted authorities and provided them with the dental records. His family then rallied to bring his remains home to Iowa, where he was eventually buried. In 1975, on July 29th, Gacy's employee, 17-year-old John Bukovic, had been reported missing. Prior to his disappearance, Bukovic and Gacy had gotten into a dispute over unpaid wages. Gacy lured Bukovic to his home under the pretense that they were going to settle the matter while his wife and stepdaughters were visiting family in another state. Instead, Gacy tricked the boy into putting on handcuffs then raped him before he, quote, sat on the kid's chest for a while and strangled him to death. Gacy buried Bukovitch's body underneath his garage, then took the teen's car and left it in the parking lot. His parents were convinced that Gacy was involved in the boy's disappearance and called the police at least once a week for nearly two years, urging them to investigate Gacy. Had the police followed buckovich's instructions, the lives of at least 30 more young men and teenage boys would have been spared. In 1976 alone, Gacy would claim the lives of at least 17 more young boys and bury them on his own residential property. We're going to go through these now, but remember all of these boys were found uh, buried in Gacy's crawlspace. Daryl Sampson was an 18-year-old who was last seen alive in Chicago on April 5, 1976. He is believed to have been murdered on April 6, 1976. Randall Ruffett, a 15-year-old who was reported missing after he failed to come home after school, and he was believed to have been asphyxiated on May 14, 1976. Samuel Stapleton, a 14-year-old boy who was murdered by Gacy sometime in May of 1976. Michael Bonin, a 17-year-old, was last seen alive heading towards the train station to meet with his stepfather's brother on June 3, 1976. William Carroll, a 16-year-old who mysteriously went missing, he was believed to have been killed on June 13, 1976. Now we have John Doe number 2, a man between the ages of 22 and 30, believed to have been murdered between June 13th and August 6, 1976. John Doe, number three, was a teen between the ages of 15 and 19. He is believed to have been murdered between June 13th and August 6th, 1976. Rick Johnson, a 17-year-old boy who Gacy picked up on the street. He was believed to have been murdered on August 6th, 1976. John Doe, number four, a male between the ages of 17 and 21, believed to have been murdered between August 6th and October 5th, 1976. John Doe, number five, was a man between the ages of 21 and 27, believed to have been murdered between August 6th and October 24th, 76. Kenneth Parker was a 16-year-old who was last seen with a friend, uh, Michael Marino, near a restaurant near Clark Street. He is believed to have been killed on October 14th, 1976. John Doe, number six, is a male, approximately 14 years old, believed to have been murdered on October 24, 1976. William Bundy, who was originally a John Doe, was a 19 year old who left his home, never to be seen again. He's believed to have been murdered on October 26, 1976. Gregory Godzik, a 17 year old employee with Gacy's Construction Company, is believed to have been murdered on December 12, 1976. In 1977, John Doe number 7 was a man between the ages of 22 and 32, believed to have been murdered between December 76 and March 15, 1977. John Zick, a 19-year-old employee of Gacy's who was murdered on January 20, 1977. John Prestige was a 20-year-old Michigan man visiting with friends in Chicago. He was believed to have been murdered on March 15, 1977. John Doe Number Eight was a male between the ages of seventeen and twenty one believed to have been murdered between March fifteenth and july seventh nineteen seventy seven Matthew Bowman, a nineteen-year-old Crystal Lake, Illinois resident who is believed to have been murdered on july fifth nineteen seventy seven Robert Gilroy was an eighteen year old who was presumed to have been murdered on september fifteenth nineteen seventy seven Um, This boy had been asphyxiated by a piece of cloth shoved down his throat. John Mowry, a 19-year-old former Marine, he went missing three days after an associate of Gacy's moved into his apartment. He is believed to have been murdered on September 25, 1977. Russell Nelson, a 21-year-old architecture student, went missing from outside a Chicago bar. The man had died from asphyxiation by a piece of cloth lodged in his throat uh, on October 17th, 1977, Robert Winch was a 16-year-old boy from Kalamazoo believed to have been murdered on November 10th, 1977. Tommy Boiling, a 20-year-old Chicago man believed to have been killed by Gacy on November 18th, 1977. David Telsma, 19-year-old who disappeared on his way to a rock concert, he is believed to have been murdered on December 9, 1977. And William Kindred was a 19-year-old last seen alive heading to a local bar. He was believed to have been murdered on February 16, 1978. He was the last body to be buried within Gacy's crawlspace. I would like to take a minute to absorb the information I just went over. That was a long section to the story. Like it, it was just shy of five minutes to read off the names of dozens of boys buried underneath the home John Wayne Gacy lived in. Rest peacefully to all of these boys who were painstakingly exhumed by investigators, basically by hand. Now, let, just give me a chance to examine the bones. Give me a chance uh, to examine some of the decomposed tissues and so forth. I can't tell, reading. Really. I mean, really Dr. Stein, what is the biggest problem that people are facing in there? Presently, the biggest problem is to get the remains intact. Make sure that we don't have any co mingling. In other words, perhaps a uh, couple of bodies together and you mix up the bones and stuff, my dad. And really, please understand this. Those poor guys down there are using literally their ten fingers. Literally using their ten fingers and trying to exhume the body because there's always the possibility of loss of trace evidence. So you can't use a shovel or suck my dad. That was the medical examiner um, outside of Gacy's home one night doing, they did nightly press conferences just to let the media know how many bodies they'd uncovered that day. But could you imagine like I, if you dig hard enough on the internet, you can find the actual police video of the entire exhumation. Don't ask me why, but I have watched it. The video is old and is poor quality, but I can tell you that these men who were initially there looking for Rob Peast at the beginning of the search. You can hear in the video that they're serious and focused, but these these officers, they're in good spirits. They were motivated and happy they had gotten the search warrant to find this boy who had only been missing for a few days at that point. Um, As they uncovered more and more human remains, the mood of the officers becomes noticeably darker, more subdued, And just very sad, you can almost feel the anger of these men as they're bringing body bag after body bag out, day after day. It was one of the most surreal videos I have ever watched. The sight of the removals, along with the atmosphere outside the house with neighbors, public media swarm the area, literally resembles a circus. If you can't find the video online, but if you want to watch it, let me know. I'm not going to put it in the show notes. The quality is so poor. It actually has a warning at the beginning of the video uh, because of the quality and the the sketchiness, the flashing and stuff. Um, So I won't put it in the show notes, but if you do want to see it, I don't mind sending you a link. You can email me or send a message over Facebook Messenger. Let's move on because we're far from done going over Gacy's victims. Those were just the ones found inside Gacy's house in that crawl space. Aside from the first, uh, Bukovich, who was uh, found in the garage under a concrete slab. So, Jeffrey Rignall was lured into Gacy's car when he was hit in the face with a rag soaked with chloroform. The 26 year old was tied up and repeatedly tortured. After the attack, Gacy dumped Rignall in a spot not far from where he was first picked up. Despite physical evidence showing that Rignall had been assaulted, Police didn't appear to take him seriously. It was one of these cases where, you know, men can't be raped and whatever, just total bigotry. Rignall then began his own investigation, even renting a car and staking out where Gacy had picked him up. And he waited until he saw Gacy's car. He followed Gacy's car. He got the license plate number. He got the address and gave the information to police, but nothing was done. He brought all of the information to police on a silver platter and they still didn't act. It was the prevailing attitudes of law enforcement in that decade that allowed this guy to get away with it for as long as he did. Basically, the victims we discussed from this point forward literally should have and could have been spared. So back in 1975, John Doe number 1, he was a boy with medium brown curly hair believed to be between 14 and 18 years old. He was strangled to death by Gacy in January of 1974. His body was housed in Gacy's closet and later buried in Gacy's backyard near his barbecue pit. Reporters have said that during the search of Gacy's home, investigators brought Gacy to the house where he marked the concrete with orange spray paint, where they would find a body. According to the prosecutor, Gacy indicated which direction the head would be in relation to the feet, so the direction of the body was placed in the ground. However, Later, Gacy would say the orange spray paint simply showed where he had poured new concrete and nothing more. Like he had no idea there was a body there, or who put the body there. Like, really? Okay, John, makes perfect sense. What an idiot. Timothy O'Rourke was a 20-year-old who had mentioned that he had recently been offered a job by a local contractor. He was believed to have been murdered between June 16th and 23rd in 1978 his body was recovered from the Des Plaines River. Frank Landigen, a 19-year-old found naked in the Des Plaines River, believed to have been murdered by Gacy on November 4, 1978. James Mazzara, a 21-year-old found floating in the Des Plaines River, believed to have been murdered by Gacy on November 24, 1978. And finally, Robert Piast, a 15-year-old who was last seen heading towards Gacy to talk to him about a job with PDM Construction. Believed to have been murdered on December eleventh, 1978, his body was later recovered from the Des Plaines River. Robert Peest would be the last young man who was reeled in by Gacy. Robert had been working at a local pharmacy when he overheard Gacy talking about a big project his contracting company was taking on. Robert told his mother that he was going to talk to Gacy about getting this job. That was the last time Mrs. Peast would hear from her son. She filed a missing persons report with police and asked the pharmacist if he knew the contractor that Rob may have gone to talk to. The pharmacist told her that he may have gone to see John Wayne Gacy. Police went to Gacy's home to question him about the incident, but he claimed that he had never spoken with Rob and agreed to come down to the station for further questioning. Gacy showed up to the Des Plains police station at 3:20 a.m. the next morning, covered in mud. He also alleged that he had gotten into an auto accident on the way. He was informed that the detective had gone home for the evening and told to come back later that day. Gacy remained adamant, though, or offered the boy a job. In spite of his claims, lead investigator James Pickell was convinced that Gacy was responsible for peace disappearance. Pickell was able to uncover Gacy's sealed record from Iowa and was granted a search warrant by a Chicago-area judge. Recovered from Gacy's home were a collection of driver's licenses a 1975 class ring that was later determined to belong to victim Zick, male clothing that was much too small to have fit Gacy, a board with holes drilled into it, reading material, a pistol, and a receipt from the pharmacy that Robert had been working at. On December 5, 1977, police were able to get in touch with Jeffrey Rignall, who was at that time pursuing a battery charge against Gacy. Rignall claimed that as he was walking home from the bar, Gacy pulled over and offered him a ride. Rignal got into the car where Gacy held a rag that was soaked with chloroform to his nose and mouth, causing Rignal to lose consciousness. Gacy then took Rignall to his house and offered him a drink before again, holding the chloroform-soaked rag to his face. Rignal awoke to find himself shackled to a board suspended from the ceiling. The board had holes for his arms and head. Gacy was standing in front of him, masturbating, then forced his penis into Rignol's mouth. Rignall again lost consciousness and awoke to an object being inserted into his rectum as Gacy barked, You love it! to him repeatedly. Rignall lost consciousness for a third time and awoke to find himself battered and bleeding in the middle of Lincoln Park. Gacy was under heavy surveillance throughout this time. He was even brazen enough to invite the officers out for dinner with him or to the bar for a drink, all the while maintaining that he had nothing to do with Robert Peace's disappearance. He claimed that the accusations had to do with his political ties and often taunted police officers by purposely breaking traffic laws right in front of them. Police canines were trained to pick up any indication of Peace's presence and were set loose on Gacy's fleet of vehicles, which would include his work vans. The dogs all climbed inside of Gacy's Oldsmobile and laid on the seat, indicating that Peace's body had been within the vehicle. Gacy invited detectives out for breakfast one morning. He entertained the officers with stories of his life as a contractor and how he had also worked with a clown troupe for various fundraisers. He was arrogantly bragging to the officers. Gacy may have found the cat and mouse game he was playing to be amusing, but little did he know that investigators were able to track down the cashier listed on the pharmacy receipt that was found in Gacy's possession. The clerk claimed that she had worn Robert Pease's coat and that she had placed the receipt in the pocket before returning the coat to Robert prior to him leaving the store that day proving that Peest had been in Gacy's home, contrary to his denial that he had never met with the boy. An employee of Gacy's was called in for questioning, and he admitted to officers that Gacy had the young man spread 10 pounds of lime around his crawl space. After the initial questioning of the employee, Gacy had invited officers into his home, while using his restroom, one of the officers noticed a distinctive odor of human decomposition emanating from Gacy's heating ducts. Police called the employee back for more questioning, and he speculated that Gacy may have put bodies in his crawlspace. It would seem that the walls were closing in on Gacy, and the real monster hiding underneath that clown makeup was beginning to show. The stress of the intense police surveillance was beginning to get to Gacy. On December twentieth, nineteen seventy-seven. Gacy stumbled into his lawyer, Sam Amarante's office, drunk as a skunk, and made a full confession. Obviously, the police were waiting for Gacy while he was in with his lawyer, and when he left, the lawyer came out and said that he couldn't tell them why, but not to let Gacy go. Gacy was arrested the following day on a minor drug charge when he was seen passing drugs to a minor, and police were able to obtain a search warrant to investigate the house, the crawlspace, and the property. While in police custody, Gacy confessed to the murders and even drew out a map to where some of the other bodies were located, but he refused to sign anything. Gacy was charged with 33 counts of murder, the most ever attributed to one person within the country at that time. The trial of John Wayne Gacy began on February 6, 1980 in the Cook County Criminal Court Building in Chicago. The prosecution team was led by William Kunkel, who was assisted by Robert Egan And Terry Sullivan. A number of acquaintances and family members testified against Gacy, including a former roommate, Michael Reed, who lived with Gacy in the midst of his killing spree. Gacy had met Reed at a bar and engaged in sex with him, and he paid Reed for sexual favors and gave him a job with the construction company. A short time after their meeting, Reed moved in with Gacy and alleged that while working in Gacy's garage one evening, Gacy had struck him with a hammer, knocking him unconscious. When he came to, he saw Gacy standing over him with the hammer still in his hand and his arm raised as if he was going to hit him again. Gacy apologized and said he didn't know what had come over him. A similar incident had also occurred when Gacy and Reed attempted to burglarize a home. Gacy's second wife, Carol, also testified. She claimed to have noticed a strange smell coming from the crawl space after she hadn't been home for several days. When she left again and then returned a few days later, she had noticed that the smell was gone. Gacy employees testified about sexual advances he'd made to them and about his directing them to dig out parts of his crawlspace. Other prosecution witnesses discussed Gacy's confession in which he described using a rope trick to kill his victims. The medical examiner explained how several victims had been strangled or suffocated. Flooring, including the trap door used to enter the crawlspace in Gacy's house, was set up as a state exhibit It remained in the courtroom for the rest of the trial. Gacy's attorneys argued their client had been mentally ill and could not be held criminally responsible for his 33 murders. They said he should instead be institutionalized. The first defense witness was, surprisingly, Jeffrey Rignall, who had survived that attack by Gacy in 1978. Rignall recounted how he'd been chloroformed and taken to Gacy's house where he was sexually assaulted and tortured due to, quote, the beastly and animalistic ways Gacy attacked me, Rignall inferred that Gacy could not control his conduct, which the defense team hoped would support their plea of mentally um, not responsible. Yet Rignall was also affected by recounting his ordeal that he vomited while on the stand. The defense closing statement asked the jury to not let hatred and hysteria cloud its judgment. When the prosecutor, William Kunkel, delivered the final statement for the prosecution, he took the victim's photos off a display board as he spoke. Quote, you show him the same mercy he showed when he took these innocent lives off the face of the earth and put them here. He told the jury as he empathetically threw the pictures into the crawlspace trapdoor exhibit still set up in that courtroom. The jury deliberated for an hour and 50 minutes on March 12, 1980, before returning with guilty verdicts for Gacy. At that time, this made him the man convicted of the most murders in U.S. history. The next day, jurors voted on the death penalty for Gacy. Illinois had reinstated capital punishment in 1977, so only the 12 cases that could be proved to have occurred after this date were eligible for the sentence. On March 13th, after 2 hours and 15 minutes of deliberation, the jury delivered Gacy's death sentence. Over the years, Gacy has twisted his stories and recanted confessions, He managed to spin his version so much that media outlets were all wanting to interview him. He did a few televised interviews where Gacy said that he never gave a confession. But just a side note here, his own lawyers can dispute this. I brought up this podcast many times before, but Defense Diaries host Bob Mata is actually the son of one of Gacy's original lawyers. That podcast's entire first season is dedicated to going over all of the tapes and information collected by his father while representing Gacy. I absolutely love this podcast. I'll link it to the show notes, and I played a small clip at the beginning of the episode of Gacy going over um, one of his murders, but definitely go and listen to that podcast. It's phenomenal, especially if you're into this case, you'll love season one of Defense Diaries. So Gacy also admitted to being compliant in only two murders meaning he helped move the bodies, and that he was aware of three additional murders, the rest he claimed to have no knowledge of, even though they all happened inside his home. At least three of Gacy's victims did not die under the circumstances of his typical M.O., and this led some to believe that Gacy may have had an accomplice. Gacy has also claimed during televised interviews that he did not act alone in the murder and rape of 33 boys. Just three days before John Maori had gone missing, an associate of Gacy's had moved into his apartment. Two girls who were friends with Maori went to the apartment and spoke with the roommate after Maury's disappearance. The girls alleged that the roommate said he knew of, of a place where dozens of bodies were buried that no one, not even the police knew about. He reassured the girls that Maori probably just went on vacation and offered them Maori's dog. They found the conversation unusual and questioned why the roommate was trying to give them the dog if he believed Maori was just out of town and would be back. Jeff Rignall, the victim who survived that sexual assault, also claims that there was a second man present when he was kidnapped and raped. This man alleged to have fit the description of Maori's roommate. This man has not been officially named since he was never implicated in the crime, but he has been arrested for several other violent crimes. Robert Gilroy is another victim believed to have not been killed by Gacy alone. Gacy was known to strangle his victims via tourniquet. However, evidence shows that Gilroy had asphyxiated on a piece of cloth lodged in his throat. Gacy was also able to prove that he was not in town during Gilroy's disappearance, though Gilroy's body was among the victims identified in the crawlspace. So, I mean, a little sketchy maybe that he was out of town, but... I don't care. He did it. Whatever. Fuck him. The murder of 21-year-old architecture student Russell Nelson has also come into question. He was with a friend outside of a Chicago bar when he went missing. Many have raised questions on how Nelson was able to disappear without his friend noticing. Like Gilroy, Nelson was also found with a cloth lodged in his esophagus. Having said all of that, as of 2023, there's still no evidence to support any charges of any potential accomplice to Gacy's crimes. So in 2011, the Cook County Prosecutor's Office exhumed the remains of eight victims, including John Doe No. 5, who was identified as Francis Alexander. He had been buried without police knowing who he was. They called on anyone who had a male relative disappear in the Chicago area in the 1970s to submit DNA. That was the time when Gacy was luring the young men and boys into his home to eventually kill them. Within weeks, the sheriff's office announced that they had identified one set of remains as those of William Bundy, the 19-year-old construction worker. In 2017, it identified a second set as those of 16-year-old Jimmy Hackinson, who disappeared after he phoned his mother in Minnesota and told her that he was in Chicago. To date, authorities are still working to identify the remains of five John Does found in Gacy's crawlspace. People can still go onto a website to submit tips or have familial DNA tested for those families who may be looking for answers for a missing loved one who would have went missing in the 1970s. The website is cookcountysheriff.org. You can search it on the internet. It's very easy to find. Um, You're just looking for the unidentified victims of John Wayne Gacy. I strongly also recommend watching Joe Berlinger's documentary, Conversations with a Killer, on Netflix. Joe actually puts a spotlight on all of this information, giving special attention to the remaining unidentified John Doe's found in Gacy's Crawl Space. Gacy's death sentence appeal lawyer, Karen Conti said that he never expressed any concern about his death. Um, She said she didn't sense he even realized that it was going to happen. Instead, she said, in the months leading up to his execution, Gacy was far more concerned with his money matters. The state of Illinois had sued Gacy for money that the killer had earned from various revenue streams while he was on death row. Among them are the artwork he'd produced, including the self-portraits as Pogo the Clown. Uh, He had a 900 number, in which pre-recorded Gacy argued his innocence to a paying caller. According to the state, Gacy was fiscally responsible for covering his incarceration, but Gacy wanted to leave his earnings for his family. Eventually, the state's civil litigation case against Gacy was thrown out, And as the weeks passed toward his impending execution, his death row lawyer, Karen Conti got to know Gacy better. Despite his horrific crimes, she said Gacy was an amusing character. He had a pen pal who said she was in love with him. And she asked, John, are you going to marry that woman? And he said, no way. That woman has three children and they're all in the penitentiary. Do you think I'm going to marry into a family like that? Really? good. For his execution, Gacy was flown by helicopter to the Menard Correctional Center in downstate Illinois, where he'd been incarcerated for 14 years to the Stateville Penitentiary just outside of Chicago. Gacy was chatty during his last day of life and made easy small talk, discussing the prospects of the Chicago Cubs, among other things. For his final meal, Gacy ate fried chicken, fried shrimp, french fries, and fresh strawberries. Conti said that in the hours before his death, he didn't strike her as somebody who had a few hours left to live. He didn't want to talk about it. He wanted to socialize with the people who were there visiting him for the last time. So he was pleasant. It was extremely emotional, she said. It was traumatizing for the people who loved him. His neighbors who had lived near him were there. They adored him, even after all of those years. It was surprising to see the outpouring of support from so many people who wouldn't admit it to the public. I don't know if I believe that. Just saying. So shortly after midnight on May 10th, 1994, Gacy was given a three-drug lethal injection. The first drug put him to sleep. A clog in the IV line delayed the injection of the second drug, but for about 10 to 20 minutes... But then the third drug stopped his heart, and Gacy was pronounced dead at 12.58 a.m. So, so, just under an hour. I mean, it's not near torturous enough, and it probably didn't hurt him at all, but I'm just saying. Mm, small victory there. Good. So, there you have it. Another show that I want to bring up, I know when we did the Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka episode. Bria talked about watching the movie Carla, and perhaps she was too young to watch that movie because from then forward it, it kind of triggered her. And the actor that played Paul Bernardo in that movie did such a good job that she could never see him in any other role. She always reverted back to that Carla role with him. I'd like to say there was a made for TV movie about John Wayne Gacy. The movie is called To Catch a Killer. Um, It has Brian Dennehy in it, Um, Margot Kidder is also in it, and this is like same same for me. I watched this probably when I was way too young, but it's still honestly one of my favorite movies, let alone made for TV movies. Brian Dennehy does a phenomenal job of portraying John Wayne Gacy, even to the point where as a kid growing up in the 80s and watching old movies nowadays, like even with Rambo and Presumed Innocent and these other roles that Brian Dennehy did, he will always be John Wayne Gacy to me. He did a phenomenal job in that role and it's a really great movie. Like I said, it was made for TV. It was early 90s, I believe, maybe late 80s maybe, but um, it's really good. I believe you can find it on YouTube. You should go watch it um, I will say that uh, John Gacy himself hated the movie, and I think it's because it hit a little too close to home. Um, so go watch that. It is great. Like I said in the beginning, this this guy has saturated to true crime for so long. I know so much useless information about this piece of crap. One thing that I'm going to leave you with, we've talked before about core memories and... Certain smells that come to you, like your mom has a certain smell and it gives you kind of a calming feeling, whatever. And where am I going as it relates to John Wayne Gacy? Get this. And I, I shit you not. This is from people that knew him. Have you ever wondered what a serial killer like John Wayne Gacy smelt like during the day? I got something that's going to stick with you so bad. Okay. So during his day to day life, when he didn't smell like alcohol or weed, this guy smelt of cigars, and baby oil. Gross. I don't know why I found that so uh, disturbing and that I wanted to share that with you, but the serial killer stunk of cigars and baby oil. It's probably what he used in his hair looking back, but that is disgusting. And that's when he didn't smell like alcohol and weed. That one mother that gets on television all the time who thinks I should be... uh... Given 33 injections, I think she ought to take 33 valiums and go lay down. She goes on Heraldo show and all these other shows talking about, uh, I think it's Maori, I think is the name. Her marine son. Her marine son, if her marine son was so great, what the hell did he run away from home 12 all time? So there you have it. This busted, corrupt, pathetic excuse of a human being is long gone. Um, good riddance. And, um, yeah... I mean, I'm glad I covered the case, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. It would have been better if I had Brie here so we could have talked about some of this stuff, like I said in the beginning, but I tried to keep it interesting. I hope you enjoyed the clips. And uh, until next time. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. If you don't mind giving us a five-star rating, it'll help our show grow. You can find us on Facebook at True Crime Story, where the discussion can continue, as well as TikTok and Instagram of the same handle. We just started an Instagram. Also, if you have case suggestions or requests, you can email them to us or Facebook Messenger. Thanks for listening. Bye.